Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shelf from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. We give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to lose one of your legs? I think just about everyone just takes their legs for granted. We've always had them. They get us where we need to go. They just do their job until they don't. My guest on the show today is Josh. He was in the Army and stationed in Iraq, and he worked as a gunner inside an Abrams tank. One day, his tank parked over a roadside bomb, and there was an explosion that destroyed the tank along with Josh's left foot. Josh told me the whole story from the moment it happened to somehow exiting the tank and getting to safety, his multiple surgeries, and his decision to finally just amputate and be done with it. He talked about prosthetics and what it was like to put that on for the first time and what he's able to do with his new leg. And Josh also has some advice for other vets and amputees about how he's dealt with the situation. He's come a long way, including struggles with alcohol and depression, but he's also quick to point out life's looking good now. I was happy to hear that, and I'm proud of Josh and what he's done since that day in Iraq. He's a good example of why we owe such a debt of gratitude to the men and women that serve in the military all around the world. For everything Josh and I discussed, I'll have links in the show notes for this episode at the website, which is at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash zero six. I'll also have Josh's email address there if you'd like to contact him directly. And if you want to see pictures of Josh as well as the destroyed tank, you can follow me on Instagram at whatwasthatlike, no spaces. So without further ado, my conversation with Josh. Josh, welcome to the show. 
Uh, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about an explosion today. And I want to know when that, when the explosion first happened right then, did you actually realize the extent of your injuries? No, um, I wasn't even sure of anything at that present moment. The first thing that I um, tried to do was find my cigarette that I had just lit. And uh, then once everything started fading in, I could start hearing again. I was Everybody was screaming, and that's uh, when I realized, holy crap, I'd been blown up. And then I actually started to check myself. But I didn't really feel much yet. I knew something was wrong, but my foot would have been crushed and mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I felt like a lot of pressure cause I didn't, or wasn't in pain yet. Was no pain at that point. No, just a lot of pressure. Wow. What, what, when you say pressure, what can you describe that? What does that mean? Um, like somebody had sat on your leg or something <laughs> felt more like that than actual pain. Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's uh, back up for a minute. And you, you, you were in the army. How old were you when you actually joined the military? Um, I joined the day I turned 17. Um, my parents signed a slip saying that I could join, you know, during that time or that early rather. So, so you can sign up at 17 if you have parents permission or 18 on your own. Is that the way? Correct. It's, okay. And then, what was your age when you actually went to Iraq? 19. So you were 19 years old. What, what kind of training do you get before you actually go into the theater of war? Well, that's different from, well, it's a culmination of different kinds of training. You know, you, you have your one station unit training, which is what most combat arms jobs do, um, which is your job training and basic training together. And it's just one shot. And for me, it was a little over four months in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And they moved the armor school down to Benning now. But then there's that. And then once you have your job training, depending upon what your station is at the tank, you're doing, you know, uh, scenarios and stuff like that at your duty station. And then you have more specific things like a convoy simulator, um, which is a video game, basically. And you're learning how to function as a unit like that, or you have additional training. Um, like we learn more about IEDs than or a normal person would because we were going there. Um, and IED for the, for people that don't know what that is. Improvised explosive device. So typically a bomb that's somewhere on the side of the road. Usually, is that right? It could be a whole slew of different things. Um, that's most commonly. Yeah. Uh, they also have, you know, trip wires on doors or um, we were told at one time that they were, they would hide some behind posters and it's like when you tear them down, it releases it. There's, it's a pretty general term, but the most common, yeah, are the ones on the side of the roads or underneath the road. There's also pressure plates, which are like a mine and that they trigger the explosive. And then there's also, um, EFP, which is explosively formed projectile, where they um, use an explosive with a copper disc to create a plasma, and then that'll just shoot straight through your vehicle. There's nothing you can do about that. So, And what was your job? What were you assigned? I was a tank gunner 
on an M1 Abrams. An M1 Abrams. Now, I've, I'm, I've never been in the military, but what I've seen and read about the Abrams tank is that it's one of the bigger or more heavily fortified tanks. Is that right? Uh, it's Technically speaking, it's the only main battle tank in the military. Uh, otherwise, it's a cavalry fighting vehicle or an armored personnel carrier. It's a technicality thing. But yes, it's 70 tons, 120 millimeter main gun. There's three machine guns on it, one for the loader on top of the turret. There's one for the tank commander on top of the turret. And then there's the coaxially mounted one and some variants with the tusk package. The terrain urban survivability kit have another one mounted on the main gun. So it actually gives the gunner access to two machine guns, even though you sit down inside the tank. And so as the gunner, you were in charge of all of those guns? Uh, no, I, as the gunner, I control the main gun and the turret and uh, the coaxial one. And someone else, how many people are in the tank? Four. Four people. Okay. But we had lost a few people, whether it be to um, actually, you know, death or injury or family issues. But we were only running a three person that day. Okay. All right. So let's talk about that day. You were in Iraq. And I believe in the city of Mosul. Is that right? Yep. Just going down the road. And can you just take us on that trip and, and tell us what happened? Oh, that day, oof, I tried to, well, was, uh, like the beginning part to it wasn't, you know, exciting. You know, we swept through one side of the city, clearing IEDs on that route. And then we went across the bridge and went over to the west side. Well, let me just stop you for a second. When you say you go through and you're clearing ID, IEDs, what, how do you clear them? Do you just drive over and let them blow up? or No, uh, we drive real slow. We're a real big target. And <laughs> we look for IEDs. Um, we go with EOD, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. Um, and they have a vehicle that has a camera and a probing arm and all that stuff on it. And then it also has, they have a robot that they can throw out the back and then take C4 over to it and blow it up in place. And we just go real slow and look for everything everywhere. And if we don't spot it, it'll end up blowing up on us anyway. So Right. But in most cases, when it does end up blowing up, you're so heavily armored that it doesn't do any damage or serious damage. Is that right? Most ones that are small, uh, especially on the tank, we don't have to worry about, for instance, tires popping because it's tracked, but we did have, we missed one. It was very clearly disguised with a whole bunch of power um, components, power lines and stuff like that on the side of the road, missed it. And it detonated on, I forget the name of the vehicle. I think it's RGV, which I don't know what that stands for. (laughs) Um, it's been some time. It was a new vehicle I'd never seen before and here we are using it. So, but it detonated, blew all the tires and stuff like that. And the vehicle was fine other than the tires and the broken glass, but the glass is so thick it breaks and it stays in place. It's ballistic glass up to about four inches thick. So, so your, so your job was to go out and find these things and take care of them before someone else just happened to go down the road and, and, uh, and hit it. Correct. Okay. All right. So you're out, you're out doing that and, uh, go ahead. 
Um, well, that day we went over to the worst side of the city, which was at that time the west side. And we were retaking a black route, which a black route means it's just impassable due to IEDs. And so unless you're rolling heavy, you don't go down that way. So we were retaking Barracuda Rat and Weasel, which were the street names. And we were going to put up a combat outpost um, cop Inman after my commander that had been killed in December the month before. So, But once we got over there onto that side, it started off as uh, we got into a firefight. And it was pretty... It was a knockdown drag out one. They stayed and actually fought quite hard. I'm not exactly sure why, as we were in armored vehicles, but they did shoot quite a few RPGs as well. Yeah, it was, uh, we had, okay, so it's the best way to explain this. Um, it's, it's a large route. It's a four lane road um, with a divider in the middle. And, you know, we're just taking contact from left and right. And, um, our, we had a Bradley with us that was part of the combat engineers and they melted down their 240 barrel and then they finally got out of the way for us to start doing our work you know in the Abrams which was screw screw stuff up we'll, we'll put it that way um, my sister tank uh, they dropped a canister round, which was interesting. I had never seen one of those fired in combat. What what is that? What does that mean? Uh, a canister round is a, I think, the X. Well, it was the XM, but it was now it's just the M ten twenty eight. I think is the nomenclature for it. But it's a hardened steel bucket full of a thousand ninety seven, a thousand ninety seven hardened tungsten balls. That is essentially a giant shotgun out of a cannon. So it, uh, it was, wow. So it See covers that? a wide, a wide target area. Correct. Um, I think it's out to 500 meters because then the spread out that far is just ineffectual. And, uh, yeah, they hit, they had an RPG guy and they hit him with it and it was just pink mist. There was nothing to, I remember the, convoy commander calling across like did you kill him and they're like uh we don't know and then they're like we we can't confirm it there's no body to confirm you know so it was just vaporized essentially that person so it was pretty nuts i mean we were shooting hundreds of rounds of coax it was and then uh well we had rpg skipping off the tank that was interesting i had known they that they'd skip because i had one uh, bounce underneath my tank before, but I know it would hit the tank and bounce off. That was interesting. And then seeing it land, because I was looking down my, you know, the main the sights, um, I saw it land in front of my sights, and I was like, holy crap, you know? And then it just, boom! I was like, wow! So you saw it go off in your sights, but didn't really, there wasn't any damage to the tank from that? Mm. Okay. Uh, depending upon the RPG, um, there's a couple of different variants of originally, you know, it's just a, essentially a rocket propelled grenade. It's designed to throw shrapnel, you know, but they have other ones like the RPG seven, um, which has, uh, I think a penetrator in it, but anyway, it's more anti-armor. 
So they have different variants of it for different purposes. So yeah, that one, you know, went off and nothing happened. I mean, to be honest, you know, we'd been hit two other times in the tank, like directly on us. And then I'd been blown up once in a Humvee before then too. I mean, I was knocked out in that one too, but, um, yeah, when it comes to the tank, I hilarious looking back on it to me now, because the first one that we hit, I was like, sound like the main gun going off, you know, Doom! and then I was like, wait, what? And they're like, Oh, that's it. That's it. That's an IED. Oh, I'm fine. You know? So you felt a little bit, uh, invincible sort of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I didn't know how big it was or what it was, you know, that had went off. But I was just like, oh, man, this is going to be a cakewalk, dude, you know. Just not worried because, you know, IEDs were the number one killer. And I was like, oh, that's it. Like, ah. And, uh, woo, no. <laughs> no. But, I mean, there was another, the one time that I got blown up in the Humvee and then I got knocked out. That one made my butthole pucker and I was pretty nervous for a couple of days after that the humvee was got shredded a little bit um it looked like it had uh, been a 155 shell with some ball bearings around it so it you know broke some crap put some holes in through the the hood and everything like that but then the the blast had slammed my face off the 50 cal and this was at night so i was wearing my nods night vision device, whatever. <laughs> but um, I think everybody knows that one. <laughs> but my face slapped off the 50 cal. It slapped uh, or it broke my nods off of my rhino mount, which is the that little funny thing on the front of helmets you see sometimes for holding them. So I, I came back to after that one and uh, I was just, what? <laughs> What's going on here? But I was so dazed, I was talking just about stupid stuff. And I was excited that they had just gotten Jurassic Park at the 7-Eleven. But anyway, back to the uh, <laughs> to that day. So we had finally, when we were in that firefight at the beginning, we had to pull around a corner and then go around another corner. Um, a left, then a right, at about mm, two, three hundred meters apart. But we had split off, you know, one person down the far lane, one person right, one person left, so we could do security and have 360 degree. So we were out of our normal order of march. And that's one of the, the reasons <laughs> why what happened happened. And so as we round to go down and make that second turn to go back, the streets kind of ran parallel, but it originated at that um, that little dog leg we took down to it. So kind of like an H without the bottom leg on it. So we had rounded the corner and then it started up again. We started taking PSAF, which is precision small arms fire, the snipers. And then we were um, getting more RPGs. And it was uh, just a lot of... A lot of fire. I just remember that much. Just like, man, I can't. Heavy action, huh? Yeah, I was just like, man, I didn't even think they had these men around. Usually, they never stick around. They'll drop like a magazine, or they'll drop an RPG, and then, you know, hightail it out of there. 
because they can't stand toe to toe with us. But this, they were going for the gold that day, and I think it's because of that IED that they had there. So, do you think they were trying to kind of fight you and direct you toward that? Possibly. Yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. I haven't thought about it too much. I mean, that whole area was just a shit show. But uh, there was only about a block in between the two roads that we were originally on. So for us to be drawn over there, it was interesting. But it's a complex ambush once the IED goes off. So, yeah, once the fighting stopped, they had like a little lull for a little bit, and then we tried to get back into our order of march. Um, we we're supposed to be next to the lead vehicle, number two in the order of march, so we can, you know, defend the rest of the convoy. And how many vehicles overall were in this march? Oh, I gotta think here. I think maybe six. Okay, and you were number two, or supposed mm-hmm. to be number two. Yeah, um, it's better for a smaller vehicle to be up front. So they can respond better. And then plus um, one of their trained people are up there looking for IEDs. So, but we just do, because technically it's convoy security is what we did in the tanks. And the only reason we were using tanks was because they had catastrophic kills, which means um, blows up the vehicle and everybody dies in the, in the Bradleys. So they decided to roll the Abrams instead. Okay. So we, are about to pull over onto the the median, kind of, you know, the grass strip, well, dirt in this scenario. But, um, and that's the, the number one you don't do thing, because you know, it's too easy to just hide an IED in that. You, know, you only need to shovel, you know, and right. it's done. And it's like, okay, so... Both, all, everybody on my tank is like, oh, dude, no, fuck that. Like, Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. 
Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We were pissed. We're like, no, you tell them to go across the beach. This is bullshit. So I'm talking with my driver and BS and kind of like, dude, yeah, no, this is this is effed up. Like, tell them to do it. You know, they have the the IED resistant vehicle anyway. So it's like, you know, we'll just get back into our order march further down the road. So we pull up to the the median and they're like, all right, all right, all right. Uh, you know, all of us are clenching and then, you know, I light a cigarette and Hughes yanks down on the, the gas, but it's kind of like a motorcycle and that it's just a twistable throttle. So it slams down on it and then we go over and then boom. And yeah. And that's, uh, that was the big one. Uh, apparently it was closer to actually underneath the road. Um, and they've already had other vehicles pass it, pass it, but they were aiming for the tank, um, as sort of a, it's better for publicity if they knock out the, the biggest, hardest vehicle right? for propaganda and whatnot. So, so it's a pressure activated switch and the lighter vehicles wouldn't, wouldn't set it off. No, um, they just didn't blow it up on them. It was a command detonated. Oh, so somebody was watching. Yep. Okay. From most likely inside the house um, that they had dug the tunnel from. I mean, I didn't know it at the time. You know, all I could tell was I just got blown up. But they had dug a tunnel from inside the house underneath the road. So there was no way for us to, to tell that there was even anything there. Right. So were you, were you rendered unconscious when it went off? Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, it was just blackout. 
It felt different, though, than the other time I had been blown up, though, which always makes me wonder. Because um, I'd you know, been knocked out on that previous one, and this one felt... Uh, you know, I had, like, the life flash before my eyes kind of thing. Felt like I lived my whole existence again in, like, a split second, and everything hurt. Like, my outsides were on my insides, and my insides were on my outsides. And then... Like, came to, like, snap to, kind of like, what in the world? And I was like, where's my cigarette? <laughs> you know, I was so dead certain. Like, where is it? I can't believe this just happened, you know? And I couldn't really tell. And, like, slowly, like, all my senses came back to me. And that's when I, like, hearing. And then I could smell. And, like, I'm actually looking around. And, like, holy shit. It was like, oh, wow. <laughs> And then, yeah, like that was, we hit a big one, a real big one. What did you see and hear? Well, initially, because I was staring at my hand for that damn cigarette. And so I think the first thing that really came to was my hearing, because then I could hear everybody screaming. Like Hughes was screaming, my tank commander right behind me was screaming. I was just like, what in the hell, you know? And then they're, they're screaming, not as in, you know, like out of anger, you know, it's like pain, pain felt screaming and just a, a lack of who even knows. And uh, then I could smell and the smell was pretty nauseating because uh, they had, the blast had blown apart our THPDV which is the turret hole power distribution valve, which is where the gallons of hydraulic fluid goes through to the different parts of the turret and the hole. So that had basically just, so it shot hot hydraulic fluid all over the tank. And we're, luckily it's flame resistant, but um, so that, and then the dirt and dust and everything, and then everything else, like the metal, like hot metal from the blast. And it was just, it was a very unpleasant smell, but, um, you know, they're screaming. I'm like, holy shit, you know, and then that's when I feel the pressure in my leg, you know, and I'm sitting down in the gunner's hole and I'm like, oh, something's not right. So I wanted to, you know, pull back and stuff like that. I had some cuts and scrapes and, you know, my back felt wonky and all that, but, um, my leg was just number one priority. So I, kind of help push my tank commander over to sit on top of the 50 cal ammo stowage in the turret. And I pulled myself out and I tried to use my foot and woo, no, that's uh that was one instance of pain that uh, I'll never forget that first time trying to use it. And then, woof, it was bad. Um, but at this point your foot was still attached. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. It had just been, what was the damage to your foot? It had been crushed by metal? Uh, just It was a, like a, they call it a floor slap, uh, which is when the blast caves in the bottom of your vehicle, and then there's no room in there for anything, barely you, to be honest. But, um, yeah, that's crunched down on my foot, so, you know, my foot was essentially, um, well, at the, clinic later they called it applesauce is what they referred to my foot as so 
Not something you want your foot to be referred to as. No. Um, <laughs> and this yeah. was your left foot or your right foot? Uh, my left foot. Okay. So, you know what I'm wondering, though? I, I'm picturing, I've never been inside a tank, obviously, but it's got to be so cramped and so tight quarters down in there. And you've got three men inside that tank. And it's just been kind of crunched in. How do you get out of a tank that's just been destroyed like that? Um, well, we, we train to do crew maneuvers, or not crew maneuvers, but uh, crew evacuations. Uh, and you, you're supposed to do it a certain way, but we couldn't go out through the loader's hatch because of the damage done to that side of the tank. So we had to go out through the, the commander's hatch. And I'm frankly too large to be in a tank. Um, there's supposed to be a height cutoff of six feet. Uh, but since I joined when I was 17, I was six feet then. But then my senior year, I grew another three inches. So I was far too tall to be in a damn tank. You outgrew the tank. Yeah. <laughs> so when it came to getting out, uh, we had we were sitting there for a while, like a little bit, because... Once the ID went off, they started shooting again. So there's more RPGs and sniper fire. I'm trying to try to get out and like poke my head out and see what's going on. And nope, nope. incoming rounds, you know, like all around the tank. It's like shit. It's like we're staying in here. Hughes is still screaming. Um, he was just out of his mind. I couldn't see him and I couldn't get to him due to the the blown apart tank. I couldn't traverse the turret. I couldn't do anything. And he's just screaming and you're like, can you see anything? Are you all right? We're trying to talk him through first aid, but he's pretty much just, and I didn't know it then just repeating back whatever we said. He's like, can you see? He's like, where are my eyes? And like, just yelling crazy shit. And, you know, I'm like, oh my God, like is, are his eyes gone? Like I can't get to him because I can't even get out of the tux and then, you know, get shot or blown up again. And then there's, you can't, there's nothing you can do. So we had to wait until they provided security for us to try and get out. And eventually it goes quiet and Hugh stops saying anything at all. So now we're worried that he's dead and you know, like we didn't even know what's going on. Um, and so I look out of the commander's hatch again, I see the vehicle beside us. They'd finally provided security and I'm, it's like, are you guys all right? And I, fuck no, I just got blown up. <laughs> there was supposed to be that system. Um, you take casualties in a in a blast, and you lose radio communication. You're supposed to throw a red chem light out of the top of the tank, or if you're fine but you lose uh, radio, then you just throw out a green one. But uh, the tank. The original place where that was stowed for us to do that was blown apart. We didn't even know where the damn chem lights were. So they didn't know. We There's no communication whatsoever. So what had happened was is they pulled Hughes out of the driver's hole, and that's why he stopped um, talking or saying. That's why I was like, oh, I thought he was dead because he's not in the tank anymore. I couldn't even tell. So finally, when it comes to, to getting out, uh, the commander's hatch is pretty small. Um, I'm a larger guy. Like I wear like an extra large. And um, I'm trying to squeeze out with my, my vest on, and I can barely squeeze out of there. And then I try and use my leg to get out, and that's when I had actually put 
you know, my entire body weight on my foot. And that's when I could feel it in my teeth um, when I stood on it, you know, like a ugh, like broken glass, like in your teeth. That's what it felt like. like all the way through my head, I was just, oh, shit, you know, and um, oof, yeah. So anyway, I can't really get all the way out because I can't use my leg. And my right knee ended up, um, I tore a bunch of cartilage in my knee during the blast. It blew my leg up and back, and then it ripped a big old tear in it. So I just, my legs aren't that well, they're not working that well right now. So I push out my tank commander, who's a smaller guy. He's, yeah. And uh, so he, he gets out. Was, was he then, injured? Yeah, he snapped a bone in his foot. But other than that, not too much. Um, the tank commander sits on a platform off of the turret floor. And that's probably why he was, I mean, he got injured, but he was mostly fine. So and that was, he didn't even uh, actually leave country. He just stayed there and rehabbed in place. But uh, I push him out and then he helps pull me out, you know, and I'm, bigger guy so you know there's this little louisiana man oh come on like summoning all the strength to help pull me out and then we're trying to stay low on top of the tank so you know we don't get sniped and uh we roll off onto the the hole and then roll off onto the ground and then i try and stand up again and i can't hop uh, it hurts my knee too much like it Everything just kind of, that's when like the real pain started to kick in because um, all the adrenaline and endorphins had worn off and uh, felt crazy alone there, you know, crawling across the combat zone on my hands and knees in the middle of a street into the Bradley in front of us. So they didn't know, I think, that we were screwed up too, or at least as bad as I was. And... I had to crawl, you know, about 25 meters, I'd say, into the back of this Bradley in front of us. And then finally they raised up the back door. And uh, it's like, okay, we're safe. We're fine. You know, we can't tow the, the tank or anything like that. As a matter of fact, the engine was still running because it severed all of the um, cables in between the driver and the the engine um, it's designed to run like that. They sometimes call it combat overdrive to get you out of a sticky situation, but it, it just by default went there and then it was still running. And then it eventually caught on fire while they were dragging it back to base. But we didn't stick around for that. They got the QRF quick reaction force out there, which is another tank platoon waiting. And uh, they, hooked up the tank and dragged it back. And as a matter of fact, it was funny though, cause it was one of my buddies from a different squadron that actually did it. So it was, it was kind of funny. So we, in the back of the Bradley and we ride back because we're so close to the fob forward operating base that scrambling a helicopter and then trying to clear an area. It's just not worth it. So, we just waited for QRF to get there as quick as possible, and then we just went back. And, yeah, they, they dragged us out, and then we hopped in a vehicle and 
drove us over immediately. That's when they took the x-ray and that's when I got my first shot of morphine. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was uh, a, a big relief, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, it was, it's like, oh man, finally. I was like, oh, this isn't going to be that bad, I guess. Because, you know, it's finally had some painkillers. Um, during that time, they medics weren't allowed to administer it. I think it was just our unit policy. I'm not 100% sure what's going on these days. But they, they gave you a combat pill pack, which is essentially some Motrin. But, yeah, and it was uh, it was weird. So I was sitting there, you know, and I'm also staring directly at two burned-up corpses in, like, open body bags that are just, like, blown apart. And I don't know whether it was our guys or Iraqis, but, you know, just staring at them while you're just sitting there trying to, to get through it. And, uh, what kind of medical facilities were there? Uh, it's probably like the equivalent to a, what would you call it? Like a first, like a walk-in clinic. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's definitely something like that. I mean, they definitely have, um, a little bit more than one would have cause they can do emergency surgery and things like that. But it's pretty small and it's kind of set up like that. Usually for anything that's, you know, worse than that, they're just going to fly you to Balad, uh, which is the main medical hub for Iraq. I'm not sure where they fly everybody um, from Afghanistan, if they fly them to Balad as well. Or maybe Camp Arif John or something. Anyway... Could you have done anything to avoid this? I mean, the, this was, well, I mean, what, what kind of, how much explosive material does it take to destroy a large tank like that? Um, definitely a lot. That one, they estimated it up to 40 pounds of C4 or 400 pounds of homemade explosives, um, like acetylene tanks, propane tanks, you know, uh, fertilizer or whatever, you know, there's, you can make bombs out of a lot of stuff. But it it takes a lot. So this wasn't a, a, a an impulsive thing. Somebody just set up in the road. They'd been working on this for a while, and most likely they had been waiting for a long time as well, because um, we didn't roll down that street very often, at least not in that capacity. And so it wouldn't. It's not something you could have spotted and and avoided. Uh, we use a variety of tactics to see where you know, IEDs are, whether it just be looking or using scopes. One of the interesting things, well, they also have a sonar, like ground penetrating sonar. And then, um, I don't think we had that at that time, but that they have that now. And then we also use thermals to see where dirt has been disturbed recently. Cause it'll be a different color. All right. Okay. Um, so there's, there's nothing we could have done. We tried everything. They were just, they did it right, I guess. Yep. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's all it was. So so your immediate treatment, they brought you back. Did you have to fly to the hospital, or, or did they completely treat you there, or what happened there? They stabilized me at the hospital there, or the medical cache is what we call it. But And um, I think this is a fun part, but um, I, was origi- I was in the ICU eventually, but uh, they had put taken my foot and then 
put it up and then put it in a giant uh, cast to prevent drop foot, um, which is a, something that happens. You lose control, and then there's it's a real sticky thing and a thing that sucks for a lot of people. There wasn't anything really holding. Uh, what's the best way to put this? Well, my heel was in over 10 pieces alone. And then the rest of my foot, you know, was broken in two. And so, you know, your Achilles tendon goes down and wraps around your heel. Well, when they pull it back, your foot back, it stretches and it goes on all that. And then what's barely holding on and very little there becomes suddenly very painful. It felt like there's napalm underneath my skin. <laughs> so, and then that wasn't enough painkiller after that point. So then they put me on Dilaudid, which is basically super strong morphine. That's hydromorphone technically is the, what, the prescription name. But, and then that wasn't enough. And so they put me on fentanyl. And that's the thing that's killing everybody. Uh, I'm not sure if other people are near the opioid and heroin crisis, but that's what's killing everybody. So they ended up finally listening to me. I thought I was going to rip the head off the damn nurse. Um, and they took it off, and then they had to put me in the ICU because I was on s such a huge quantity of uh, medication that I could have died, you know. And then once they finally took it off and then let my foot rest, like they kind of made a a blanket nest roll for it thing. And uh, they put it down and took the brace off. And I finally was like, oh, okay. Woo. And I finally could sleep. So, And, and when that happened, how long had you been there? How long after the, after the uh, injury? How long after the explosion? What was that when you could finally rest? I kind of lost concept. Of was, time. I mean, was it the same day or? Oh, it was uh, the same day. Okay. They couldn't operate because they didn't have hardware or anything like that there. So they're going to fly me to Balad and I left the next day. And once I got to Balad, they tried to operate again, but then I had compartment syndrome, uh, which is where the swelling kills off tissue. So I had compartment syndrome all over my foot and whatnot. So they cut it open and cut out all the dead flesh and put me on a wound vac. And they couldn't fix anything yet because they didn't have the hardware um, in my size, essentially. Because I have very large feet, 15s. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. They don't, they don't stock steel rods that large, huh? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so then they've flew miss back to launch tool where I had another two operations um, and they still couldn't operate then. And so they then flew me to Bamsi in San Antonio. And that's where uh, I finally got, well, more surgeries and then finally got my, my foot fixated. So, so you said San Antonio. So you're back in the U S at this point. Mm -hmm. I took about, Four days, maybe five, I think. Were, were there any other injuries other than your foot? Oh, uh, well, I mean, my spine ended up with bulging discs, and then it's compressed. And the, my knee uh, had that tear in it. Um, I'm not 100% sure what the result of this 
was, but uh, one of my testicles had ended up turning into a giant tumor, possibly. I'm not saying it's related to the blast, but it happened during that time. I was wondering if it ruptured and then grew that way or what, but I had to have one of my boys taken out. So, And then what else? Yeah, I think that's... So what was your, at this point, what was your prognosis? Were they going to just somehow fix your foot or? Well, yeah, they were going to attempt and reconstruct it and get it to a point where, you know, it's usable. Um, And that was the goal. Wasn't going to be pain-free, but usable. (laughs) So fast forward, you know, a year and a half later, total of 13 surgeries on it. And it's nothing. It's the worst thing ever. My toenails are getting torn off when I walk. It's extreme pain. My left leg's shorter than my right. And it, uh, my heel had broken off like that. It, the hardware broke and then my heel broke off and then it fused even with the rest of my foot. And it's supposed to form kind of a, a third point, you know, a little up higher. And it was, had fused flat and I'm walking on the bottom of my ankle essentially now. And my toes were fused. I had osteomyelitis. My ankle was fused and, uh, it was, uh, it was a huge piece of crap. <laughs> and so I talked to my doctor about having it amputated as well. I've been recovering for this year and a half surgery after surgery. I'm seeing these guys come in that are amputees and leaving like three months later or not three months, but like six months or a year later, completely fine and running, you know? And I was just like, well, what, what's going on with this? This is a piece of crap. Can we do that? And so they listened and I had it electively amputated. So did any of them advise you against amputation? Like they thought maybe they could get it worked out. Well, I wouldn't say advise against it, but a lot of them, you know, believe that you should try and keep your body as it is. It's kind of a, uh, I don't know what a the standard protocol or something. Yeah. I mean, the doctor's like, oh, you know, he's trying, he's trying all of his hardest work and, or she is. So they were trying to, they were trying to get you to not really say, okay, yeah, you should amputate because in general they want you to keep the parts that you have. But it sounds like it was kind of a no-brainer that it was time for the foot to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, the The next time I saw, because my doctor at that time wouldn't do it. So I had to go see the head of orthopedics, and he agreed and said that he would do it. And then I walked in to have my leg amputated, <laughs> which was weird. But fast forward two months later, the next time I saw him after this, um, after the you know, the post-op carry in the hospital was when I was hanging upside down off a pair of monkey bars or not monkey bars, but a pull-up bar in the rehab facility. And they're like, Oh, Hey, I guess we made the right choice. I'm like, yeah. You know, at what, where was the amputation? Where was the cut line? Uh, about six and a half, seven inches below the knee. Okay. I've heard there's a huge advantage to having it below the knee as opposed to above the knee. Oh, for sure. Uh, below the knee is kind of a rock star amputation almost, but uh, it still you know sucks at times. But overall, it's just in total number of joints, it's better. You still get the use of your knee anyway. Yeah. I mean, they have some really cool legs now for above the knee, but they're still, still 
a lot easier to be below than me. And how long after the amputation do, do you have to wait before you can be fitted with a prosthetic? Uh, usually it start about two months, possibly. Was it three to two? I'm trying to remember. I think it was just two, which is another thing which blew my mind. But it makes sense because bone takes longer to heal. And if you're not worried about the bone healing in the same manner, I suppose, uh, it's, you can get up on your feet faster. It seems like even after two months, it would still be with such a, a major traumatic uh, action on your leg that it would still be sensitive or painful to put pressure on it there. Uh, it it was a little bit, um, but they're smart. They know that we were probably going to do something stupid. So for the military guys, they keep our legs at night for the first you know few weeks so we don't overdo it. So meaning your prosthetics aren't accessible to you because they don't want you going out running laps around <laughs> or something. Yeah, it's, yep, just doing something stupid or you know going to the mall without you know crutches or something like that and getting stranded because you can't wear your leg anymore. Or yeah, it's it happened more than you think. What, what was it like the first time you put that prosthetic on? Uh, it was. Hmm. To be honest, I was just amazed. Uh, I was so excited and I put it on and then I stood up and I was like, Hey man, this doesn't hurt as bad as my foot did already, you know? And it was the first time and I was all right. And it was pretty intuitive, you know, since I have my knee, you know, you just kind of get through it, but to build smoothness in your gait, that's different. And that's what, all of the physical therapy we did was for, which is every day, twice a day for, you know, months. But, uh, I was just so amazed. I, I was up and walking that I don't know any, like I didn't have, there was no sadness. There was no anything. I was just that excited to finally get up and do it. Just to be able to walk and not have that pain anymore. Yeah. So it sounds like you adapted to it pretty quickly. Uh, two months after that, uh, I was snowboarding. Uh, I was running. And, and, yeah, I mean, it was... That's pretty so quick. Why didn't I, wow, why didn't I do this sooner? So it was about four or five months before, I, you know, total, like from amputation to uh, when I was doing that. So are you? did you get to the point where, at that point, were you... When you're walking, you're not even thinking, okay, I got to be careful. Or I got to step this way. Or it was just instinctive at that point. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty fast then. Yeah. It's a, uh, there's like some finesse involved uh, that, but overall for most things, I didn't think about it at all. It was just pretty natural, but the, the manner in which I walk with my prosthetic was pretty similar to how I was having to walk with my foot anyway, as it was in a brace, my ankle was fused, toes were fused. So it was kind of there already. Are you the same height as before the explosion? Yep. Well, mostly. <laughs> I mean, my, my spine um, got shorter. We'll put it that way. And then uh, due to the explosion. And then I have a slight curvature in my back. It's what all um, unilateral amputees have. It's pretty much just because you favor one side or you lean 
I mostly lean on my real leg if I'm standing still or something like that. So it just kind of does that over time. Do you wear the prosthetic at night? No. Okay. Um, you don't really need it, obviously, if you just lay yeah. in bed. Yeah. Well, usually if I'm even sitting on the couch, I take my leg off. It's just un- it's uncomfortable to have your knee bent backwards and have this giant um, mess of urethane and the, the sleeve and the liner to sit up underneath there. So what does it feel like when you're sitting there just sitting on a couch watching TV or what, what does it feel like to be missing part of your leg? Do you, I've heard of phantom pain and things like that. Do you have that? Um, I used to, uh, I still occasionally have it now. Um, mostly it's sensation. You know, I could still wiggle my toes in my head and f- like feel them. Like I, I can move them in my mind, and if I close my eyes, it's like I, they're they're not gone in a way because you can still move them individually, and it's it's weird. You know, like I could still move my foot up and down, and you can see it all move on my stump. Cause I'm not sure how the brain functions. I think we're still trying to figure that out when it comes to why that feeling's still there. You know, and and people that have not experienced it really don't understand what that's like i'm sure that's i still feel weird explaining it because i'm not sure if i'm doing it justice or saying it the right way so how how was it dealing with the va for medic for your medical procedures uh after i've gotten out or well going through that whole time you said you had 13 surgeries oh i didn't deal with the va during that time uh, this is active duty hospital, um, military treatment facility. And that was phenomenal. Uh, it's, you know, companies leap to try and get into uh, military hospitals because you're seeing a lot of serious injuries and, you know, they get the government funding for it. So it's, uh, it was phenomenal. And then you've had, do you have ongoing treatment now? Are you dealing with the Veterans Administration for for uh, medical treatment now? Yes, I am now. Uh, I go in up to Cleveland for prosthetic care and uh, most things, you know, for my shrink. I go to Akron. But All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about that then. You mentioned a shrink. Mm-hmm. Are you dealing with PTSD, depression, anything like that? Yeah. Um, uh Definitely PTSD. I mean, I'm talking about it today and it's taken what it's been 10 years, you know, and I'm still have issues with it from time. Well, not from time to time, but uh, often Uh, a lot of PTSD ends up, or at least for me, it it changes who you are. Then it it tweaks your personality. You don't even realize what's going on anymore. And uh, it's, it's been weird. Um, and then with depression, I was you know, a depressed wreck for years. I uh, ended up hospitalizing myself last year in October uh, for nine days. And then I finally got the start of the help that I needed. And uh, now I'm on a stiff dose of antidepressants. So, and, that, um, and that's effective? That's helping? Yes. Yeah. Good. That's, that's good to hear. What, what's your position on medical marijuana? Um, it's a plant that grows in the woods. 
Like, you know, I, I don't smoke, but it, it seems common sense to me. Have you ever been prescribed that or? No, um, we just had it legalized up here uh, this past last year, but I th- still think they're hammering out some of the uh, issues with it or how it's going to be handled. I know that they just tried to get the VA to do that. Now they're urging them to study that as well. I mean, they're also using MDMA for severe cases of PTSD. And there's a lot of things out there. Yeah. But, uh, a lot of factors to consider and getting that passed. Yeah. We've got a lot of brothers and sisters that use it for their uh, mental health needs and stuff like that. And it's, they love it and they're happy and it's, you know, it's not mother nature did it right. So why should we screw it up kind of thing? So. All right. Well, let's talk about your life after this event. I know you're still dealing with it, but um, are you on disability now? Do you have you have ongoing yes. medical treatment the rest of your life or how does that, what's that look like? Yeah, I'm, I'll be undergoing medical stuff for the rest of my life. Uh, well, what can you describe? What's your life like now? Oh, now it's uh yeah, medically retired. Um, I don't have to work, but I have worked. I jumped between a whole bunch of jobs and stuff like that. And I was a depressed wreck. Just fell into the bottle for a long time, and you know, I lost that purpose and stuff like that. I still, you know, go to the VA. Still dealing with a couple of issues with the VA um, in regards to benefits, uh, like a traumatic brain injury and things like that. Um, but I was going to school for a while and then I had to back out because it was, uh, during that time I hospitalized myself. So from then it's these days, I mean, it's actually really good since then. Um, you know, I have an amazing fiance. We got our first kid on the way. Things are actually really starting to look up with the medication and everything else. Are you able to drive? Yep. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's my left foot. So, I mean, I was always right footed. So that makes sense. (laughs) So, you know, an automatic is fine. Um, It's illegal for APT to drive manuals, but I may or may not have driven one for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of people yeah. with two regular feet can't drive a stick shift, so <laughs> you're doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Do you have a? Is there a plans for a, for another career or anything like that? Well, I want to finish my my degree in uh, applied mathematics and hopefully get into something uh, regarding the space race that we have going on. Working for these one of these companies, you know, or at least just something. I I really love math, <laughs> so. Yeah, the world is very gray and uh, black and white. Math, you know. <laughs> Math is a science. It's it's yeah. How did the explosion change your outlook on life, if if it did in any way? Uh, I mean, it's my outlook is still something I struggle with from time to time, finding purpose in what I want to do and the meaning of life and whatnot. Um, but it's. Uh, kind of after everything kind of turned me into more of a humanitarian, almost a, I wouldn't say humanitarian, but, uh, 
understanding of the human condition more so and a bit of a pacifist these days. Um, not saying that I would never fight, you know, if we were invaded or something like that, but I don't know. I just don't see the point in war, I guess, unless you absolutely have to. And it seems that to me, um, we, we tend to go stick in our business in uh, places where it shouldn't be. I think a lot of people feel that way, you know, and I hadn't thought about it when we, when we first connected, it was like a week ago or actually more than that. And we uh, determined that, uh, okay, yeah, let's have our conversation, you know, this like next Tuesday. I hadn't realized the date significance of today being where, as we record this, it's September 11. Um, obviously a, a big day in our country and with the military and everything. So let me say this, maybe I should have started the show with this. Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Do, do you get that when people find out that you were in the military? A lot of people thank you and you ever get tired of that? Uh, I'm not much of a, I mean, I, I get people thanking me often. Um, which is great. Um, I think it's good to support the military, even if you don't support the war. Um, so that's, I think people have gotten a lot better about that. Um, grandpa was a Vietnam vet and, uh, he came home right before the state shooting and, you know, was around for that. But to me, I, I'm not good at uh, receiving compliments, let alone gratitude. So, uh, I mean, I, I always appreciate and try and do my best to thank whomever as well, but uh, I don't know. It's a, uh, it's a weird thing for me. It's like, I, I loved the military. I loved what I did. Um, you know, in the military it gave me purpose and it gave me, you know, a lot of opportunities and, you know, I, I don't know. I'm grateful for the military. So do you, do you get comments on your new leg when you're out? Oh, this one, yes. Um, my other leg, not so much. It looks like a, the one I had before. This kind of looks like a standard leg. But this new one, um, it's made by Oser. It's called the Cheetah Explorer, I think. And it's it's pretty strange looking. It, you know, How's it, it? In what way? It looks like one of those you know, Oscar Pistorius running legs, but it actually has an entire foot on it. So I can wear it you know, with normal shoes and things like that. So it's a... It looks, you know, a little bit alien or foreign, and I think it kind of looks cool. I mean, I always thought carbon fiber looked cool anyway. So. And you can run and everything. Is there anything you can't do? Can't moonwalk, and I can't do calf raises. <laughs> what was the second thing? Calf raises. Calf raises. Oh, yeah. uh, for weightlifting you're talking about. Yeah, that's okay. – well, I mean, I can't with one leg, but <laughs> – Okay. All right. Well, as we wrap it up here, do you have, you know, there's going to be people listening to this that are also veterans and possibly also amputees. Do you have any advice for them? What would you say some, to someone like that? Just don't stop. I mean, if you stop, and I know that's hard because when you get down and I, I know I've done it, um, you just crumble into your own self and your own depression and, you stop living your life and you, you got to get started again. You got to stick with it and it's okay to need help. You know, if you need medication or therapy, 
I mean, it's good for, I think, everybody just to see a therapist every now and then anyway, <laughs> whether you're healthy or not. But, you know, just you can't stop. And uh, if you have stopped, you got to get going. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It's taken me years, almost 10. So uh, I guess that's it. I mean, don't be too proud to ask for help and keep going. Josh, what was the, what was the reaction of your parents or your mom when you first told them that uh, this had happened? Well, my mom found out when I was high on Dilaudid right after I got blown up, not more than probably two hours after it, I would say. And my sergeant major handed me a phone. Um, and I remember it was this dinky ass little phone, you know, no longer than like three, three and a half inches. And so he's like, okay, you want to call your mom? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so that seems really fast, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I was like, really? I mean, I'm okay. I mean, sure. But I didn't know I was going to be the one telling her, you know, like what happened, all that noise. Um, so the reason I said that comment about the small phone, because it pissed me off because I couldn't talk into it and hear at the same time. Oh, so you had so to I keep had moving to, it back and forth. Okay. Yeah. On my face. Uh, Cause I couldn't talk well. And then like I'm slurring. And so my mom answers the phone and I'm like, ah, oh, mom, I got blown up. You know? And she's like, wait, what, what are you drunk? And I was like, no, mom, I'm not drunk. <laughs> I'm in fucking Iraq. I got blown up. <laughs> and she's like, what? And then she finally understood it and, you know, sat down and, I was like, okay, I, was, I don't really remember what I said other than that, but, uh, you know, hung up and then got back to it. Um, she's the only person I called. And lo and behold, though, because I had called her, the Army decided that it wasn't important to keep up the communication and to let her know more because I had already made a phone call. So she's just in the dark for the next five days, pretty much. Um, she ends up freaking out and calling people for hours. She gets in touch with a, a lady from Soldiers Angels in Germany. And so this is about two, three days later. And it's like my mom was like, I told her, it's like, does he like anything? Like, I, he likes fleece blankets and gummy bears. It's like, and so I was getting dragged off the, the transportation bus on a stretcher into the hospital in Germany. And some lady was like, are you Josh Holm? I was like, yeah, who the hell are you? And I just get a fleece blanket and a giant bag of gummy bears thrown on me. And I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and then uh, well, another little bit right after that, uh, David Baldacci, you know, the author. Uh, I've heard other famous. Yeah. What what but, is he what, what is he written? Uh no clue. I okay. don't really I've heard I the name, really, but I'm not I don't know if I've read any of his books. Uh and he's I know he's I think similar to John Grisham or something. But uh yeah, he came into my hospital room in Germany, I was in Launchstuhl. I was who the hell are you? And he gave me two signed books and some chocolates and I was like, This is the weirdest thing ever. Like That is pretty random, yeah. Yeah. It's like okay. Well, Josh, you've been through a lot. It sounds like you're you're at least over the worst of it and uh which I'm glad to hear about. And if anyone wants to contact you, I have your 
email address. I'll put that in the show notes for this episode, along with links to other things that we've talked about here in this conversation. And thanks again for sharing your story. Awesome. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode. My goal for each show is to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you want to help support the show, you just need to subscribe, and that way you'll never miss an episode. You can click on any of the subscribe buttons on the website, which is whatwasthatlike.com. You'll see all the links right there at the top where you can subscribe directly to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or on whatever app you use to catch your podcasts. And you'll see there are also links to Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow us there, and I hope you do. And if you really want to connect with me and get in on the discussion with other listeners to this show, you can join our private Facebook group. You can find that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. And of course, you can always email me directly at scott at whatwasthatlike.com or just go to the website and click on contact. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or a previous episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next show where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like? Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.